Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Imagine your 12-year-old daughter has subtle scars on her wrists, just disappearing up her shirt sleeve, even in the summertime when tank tops used to be her norm. Your 14-year-old son has unexplained bruises, but no complaints of bullying or sports injury. Your 11-year-old student has burn marks on his or her arms. As many as 12 to 37% of young people have engaged in non-suicidal self-injury, defined as the deliberate destruction of body tissue without suicidal intent. Their bodies have become a billboard for self-expression, and it's not limited to any one group of teens. I mean, we're talking about your kid, my kid, the next door neighbor's kid, high achievers, shy kids, boys and girls, popular kids, athletes, kids with abuse or trauma history, kids who identify as LGBTQ, and any other group of young people you can imagine from all ethnic groups and backgrounds. Parents who uncover this alarming behavior are gripped by uncertainty and flooded with questions. Why is my child doing this? Is this a suicide attempt, a cry for help, attention-seeking behavior? What did I do wrong? What can I do to stop it? Today, we are going to delve deep into self-harming. We're going to be talking to self-injury recovery expert, Dr. Janice Whitlock. Janice Whitlock is a research scientist in the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research at Cornell University. She's the founder and director of the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery. Her research is dedicated to linking science with efforts to support and enhance the lives of youth, especially in the areas of social and emotional health and well-being. In addition to conducting research in these areas, she is dedicated to making research accessible and useful to those best positioned to make a direct difference in the lives of youth, such as you, parents and youth-serving professionals. She has written a book along with her co-author, Elizabeth Lloyd Richardson, called Healing Self-Injury, A Compassionate Guide for Parents and Other Loved Ones. I want to welcome you, Dr. Janice Whitlock, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you. So before we get into the meat of the matter, for those who haven't had the opportunity to meet you or read this book, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in healing self-injury? Um, that's a great question. I, I actually didn't know that self-injury existed in 2003, I think it was, when it came to my attention. Um, but I had spent a good decade in the field working with adolescents and young adults um, uh, around issues related to adolescent and, and young adult and women's health. 
And I had been a foster mother for a young woman who had struggled with a whole bunch of different issues, but not this. So when self-injury showed up in my world through a couple of family friends whose kids uh, then teens were, were injuring, and I, I knew the families, I knew the kids, I knew the history, I was like, I couldn't wrap my brain around what it was and why it was and how it might have helped as they said it did. So I went to the literature in 2003 just to kind of figure it out and found almost nothing. There was very little there. There was some, but it was very, very modest. It certainly didn't describe what we were seeing. And so then I started what I thought was going to be a tiny research program along the way. I was just going to do one study, and that was 2004 is when that started, and here we are. Wow. It sounds like it's been quite a journey for you. And, and what a really important area as it has become to our knowledge, very much more prevalent, or at the very least, we are getting more reports of it, we understand it more. I'd love to find out why it starts. In your book, Healing Self-Injury, you say, self-injury is not a commentary on who a person is or where or he or she is from, nor does it reveal anything about one's uh, quality of family life or parenting. So if you could tell us, first, why do people self-injure? And then maybe what are some risk factors for this type of behavior? I mean, does it have anything to do with being an adolescent? Can we can we look to anything? Um, yeah, adolescence uh, in and of itself is a risk factor for self-injury, largely because a lot of the developmental processes that are happening during the time of the greatest onset, which is around 15. I mean, there's a range of, of ages that you might see it in, but... Those, that age range around 12 to 15 is uh, one of the most common times. And that happens to be um, the time where sort of the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system, but you know, the prefrontal cortex is, is the uh, part of the brain that is the executive function and planning. And the, the limbic system and the amygdala are this, the parts of the brain that govern emotion. Those two parts of the brain are um, sort of the most divergent as, they're ev- as they will ever be at that time of life. So it's just generally a, a confusing time, and people tend to have strong emotions that they often feel like they, they can't control and really want to control, and self-injury can, for some people, become a quick and easy go-to. Mm-hmm. So that may be a, a reason why people start to self-injure, is to cope with some of the big feelings that they're having and the stress in their lives. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. It is primarily a stress relief for, for people. So for a lot of people, the people that it works for, they can self-injure and go from a state of high agitation emotionally and into a state of calm really quickly. Uh, it doesn't work that way for everybody, but for the people that it works for, it can work for really fast. And if they discover it in some way, uh, it becomes a quick and easy go-to because, you know, it's free, it's easy, it's something you can do at home. It's it's um, just incredibly accessible, and it's really different. I mean, for those parents who are listening and and just heard me say that we're talking about something that has nothing to do with suicide, this is really different from suicide. Even though you might be seeing marks on a person's wrist, right? Right. So it can look very much like suicide. And for a lot of parents, it's really terrifying Mm -hmm. because it it can look and feel like, you know, your child, your beloved child um, is trying to end their their lives, which is understandably distressing. Mm -hmm. Um, So but it isn't, you know, self-injury by and large is 
an attempt to cope. And so if somebody's actively self-injuring, honestly, especially on any given day, even if they've been suicidal, I usually, and, and they're clear that it, there's no suicidal intent, then it's uh, usually a sign of coping. And it's that to, means to me they're at probably lower than average risk for suicide on that particular day um, because they're engaging their coping technique, basically. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you say is that that living in today's society can play a role. You you talk about today's world and having access to social media as as both good and as problematic when it comes to self-injury. So can you tell us how technology can play a role in self-injury? Um, you know, it, it, technology plays a role in self-injury in the same way that it seems to play a role in a lot of things that are not necessarily good for us. It, it allows space for people to gather around, uh, and in this case, a, a behavior that isn't necessarily a good long-term coping mechanism and is um, you know, obviously detrimental and, and scary and can inadvertently end one's life if somebody cuts too deeply or more more severely than they intended. Mm-hmm. So it provides a forum, the internet does, for people to come together around that. And even if people aren't actively talking about how they injure or giving any kinds of details, very triggering details, the, the, sometimes just the very act of sharing the stories that people have created and have around why they injure can trigger other people. So in that way, it can be sort of a, a triggering element. The internet as, as a whole uh, is also potentially triggering just because the, the volume of stimulus is huge and young people really, like all, most adults too, but young people in particular have a very difficult time self-regulating. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to turn that, turn it off or down when they really need to just take a pause. Um, and that can overstimulate and cause a desire for downregulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also a place where people get support and help and make positive connections. So it's hard to completely vilify the internet, but it, it's probably playing a role in um, sort of hastening things for some people. Right. And I know you said in your book also that that it can give access to people to be aggressive and to bully and say things that can make people feel insignificant, which also can perhaps lend itself to somebody self-harming in order to deal with those emotions. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I mean, for for sure. And that's true for a lot of different things, right? Right. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's really important for people to be mindful about where they're going, why they're going there, and what they're getting online. And that becomes one of the I think that's one of the potential opportunities that if somebody's in treatment or in active recovery for self-injury, that they can start to enhance awareness about uh, a lot of things in their life in terms of like, how do they regulate emotion, but also where do they go online and what's making them feel better versus feel, feel worse. Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I'm sure that those who are listening really would want to understand if I was to find out that my child is self-injuring, maybe from a child's, the child's friend or a sibling or a school nurse or somebody else, what would be the first steps to engaging in a conversation about it with your child? And also, how can you start supporting your child the right way from the start? Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think the first, the latter part of what you said is the most important part. It's for the, the, the first step is just to, to examine your own feelings about it. Mm. Um, to note where where really sharp edges of fear come up or guilt come up or anger. I mean, a lot of parents will 
will feel fear immediately and they go right after that into anger because uh, anger is a secondary emotion and they, you know, it can just, like their child may not even see the fear part, they might just see the anger part um, or the dismay or the disdain or all that sort of stuff. So I would first just examine your own feelings about it before you're in front of your child and um, then prepare and, and, and prepare to, to um, to proceed into a conversation with the child from a state of compassion. I mean, I think that's really, really important because that first conversation can go a lot of different directions and it can dictate what happens next. So a conversation in which a young person feels like a parent is actively trying to understand and it's totally fine if a parent isn't all put together. It's totally fine if a parent, we we encourage parents to be authentic in the sense of saying, you know, look, this really scares me. I, I love you and I'm worried that you're going to inadvertently in your life or it scares me and I don't understand what's happening and um, I want to. I mean, but the, the meta communication needs to be I love you and I'm open and willing and wanting to understand what's happening with you. Mm-hmm. If, if that, that's a very different conversation and that can lead to a very different place than a parent who brings all of their anxiety, angst and, and uh, fear and anger and guilt to a child. Mm-hmm. And then that ends up being, even if they don't say it this way, it can very much end up feeling to a child like um, they're not, they, they've just disrupted, they've hurt their parent, they're making their parent angry, they're doing something wrong. And that kind of experience is probably going to shut doors. It's mm-hmm. so hard because I can imagine as a parent who is hearing this, that automatically they go into you know certain thought patterns that are detrimental and personalizing it and and saying that you know this is my fault or you know what the heck are you doing there's a lot of different thought patterns that you actually talk about in your book uh, including overthinking and black and white thinking and jumping to conclusions and catastrophizing so can you tell us about a little bit more about what might be going on in a parent's brain and sort of how that might sound if it comes out of their mouth uh, while talking to their child and then maybe how we might change those. Sure. Um, So what goes on in a parent's brain? You know, it's every family's different, of course, um, but one of the experiences we've had a lot when we work with parents is um, there's often parents will feel guilt. There's Mm -hmm. almost always one part of a parent that will go do, what did I do? How did I cause this? And there's, you know, almost always something to find because life is messy and hard and who gets to have a teenager without having some more mm-hmm. stuff happen? Mm-hmm. Divorces or some tra- trauma or unexpected event or some, you know, just chronic financial stress. There's lots of things that can mm-hmm. that can just feel to a parent like it might've been the cause. So um, that's, that's normal and, um, expected and it's really important that parents know that they didn't cause it that you, you can't you can't cause it um you it, there's contributors to it of course and it's useful for parents and, and kids to together ideally in therapy or some supported setting um talk about those things because it can really be helpful to establish this authentic connection that is actually the most important part of the healing process i mean one of the reasons we wrote this book for parents is because it became clear after we did a few years of research um, that parents matter so much. Mm-hmm. Like I did not expect that, especially since the, the first set of research I was doing was on college students. 
Um, but I was doing, we were doing some pretty advanced analyses and we had lots of different kinds of um, people in the models. Like we'd ask people about their relationships with parents and basically any possible kind of person you could imagine. And what kept showing up in our analyses and our studies over and over is that it really helps to have adults around when somebody is in the recovery process um, more than just having peers. So adults mm -hmm. matter, any adult matters, as long as it's a healthy uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but parents matter more than anybody mm -hmm. by a lot. Like it was striking mm -hmm. and it kept showing up. So I was like, well, clearly no matter what parents do, actually do or think that they do or worry that they do mm -hmm. to contribute to the onset, they are absolutely essential parts of the recovery process. Mm -hmm. And as we dug into that, it's because it looks like because it's with parents that deepest vulnerability and deepest authenticity often can happen and usually needs to happen in order for um, recovery to happen. Mm -hmm. It's not absolutely critical. So people do recover without really good relationships with parents, obviously, but it's really, really helps. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that's such an important revelation, given that we're often told that in adolescence, the peers matter the most. So just to underscore that, in this regard, really, parents matter even more so than peers in this recovery process and that there is something we can do as parents and I'd love to sort of step into that now and and talk about what might help the situation since self-injury is a coping mechanism really what can stop it I mean is there anything that we can do as parents or key adults like teachers or coaches that can keep a child from self-injuring and perhaps urge them towards coping mechanisms that may be more healthy? Um, yeah, I, I mean, okay, so there's no, I can't give you any magic bullet for mm -hmm. making sure that we can prevent it. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. So that's the other thing that parents, this is what parents struggle with, you know, they, we often feel, and I'm a, I'm a parent, um, and I'm a parent, so I don't think get this. My parent, my kids are now young adults, so mm -hmm. I've been through it. Um, but we often feel like we have a, too, a lot of control in our, or a lot of mm. power in our children's life. And it's true, we do. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff out there that, that is contributing to things like self-injury. Um, we live in a really complicated world in a really complicated time. And that's well outside what parents can and can't do. So they just got to know that. There's a limit to what you can do. The other thing is that... Um, that I see a lot is parents um, struggling to, to let go of that control. It's, uh, they really want to be able to crawl into their kid's skin and fix it for them yeah, because sure. they can see exactly what needs to happen. And we, I think the one thing that, that the parent the parent journey that sort of walks the track alongside a kid who self-injures is really one about control and lack of control. Like, you know, at the end of the day, it's really your child who has to, to do this inner work. And you know what I will say now, because I don't want to forget to say it, and maybe I'll say it again, in a good number of, in our in our studies with families, um, over, I'd say nearly half of parents say, especially if they've gotten down, down that track of ways with their kids, say that there has been gifts because, uh, to this whole process, because they've learned so much better how to how to separate out what they can and can't do, how to support their child without trying to fix it, and and that ends up engaging in power struggles eventually. Usually, you know, how to let go of what they can and can't control, and really just be there, and how to then have these hard conversations. So there can be gifts, um, and people often do come through not just people who injure, but 
the families as a whole can do that, mm -hmm. um, can get something from it and get deeper wisdom and closer relationships. Wait, you didn't. I didn't answer the question about prevention. So, do you want me to do that? Yeah, I, I definitely want to know. You know, what would be what would be helpful and what is really not helpful in in prevention or even helping to stop it after it starts. So, not helpful is um, is anything that's going to relate to you know anything that's going to end up in a in a power struggle. Mm -hmm. Not helpful. I, I really urge parents to think a lot about sort of what they know about their family, their family dynamics and their, their kid and totally understand the desire to, to you know, limit a child's availability or uh, ability to access methods or bad friends. I get that. Um, I, and, and it's not a bad thing to do except that I would highly recommend that they do it through agreements whenever possible with their child and not mandates. As soon as mandates start, it's going to be a power struggle, and we're widening the gap here, not not closing it. Mm. Agreements are a very different thing. Agreements require a parent to um, recognize, I think, that they they may not get everything they want, and that they may not ultimately be the primary architect. Agreement is just something that's crafted, and it's best uh, if it's honest. You know, if a parent says, "Here's what I'd like. I'd like you really not to hang out with this person because I've noticed that." when you do, you come back agitated. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't say, thou shalt not. That's, mm. I mean, that's a very fine line and right. stuff. So that's what I recommend they avoid. Um, what I recommend that they do is um, get educated. I mean, we have, there's the book that you mentioned. There's also lots of free resources on our website and other people's websites. If you just Google self-injury resources or self-injury recovery resources, you'll find things. So go learn about what this is. Go learn about why it works because I have found that when you can, de and it's tough for me to explain on the phone, so I wouldn't have to do that, but I've found that when you ex when you can understand physiologically what's happening to some degree, it there is this like, oh, I get it moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then do whatever you can to um, to enhance compassion and you know use really positive relational techniques for having conversations. And we, we go through a number of those in in the book, but you know active listening, um, agreements, agreement forging, uh, therapy is really helpful. Find somebody you trust that you can talk stuff through with. And I say this as a family, but mm -hmm. also I think the number one, the second question I always ask parents when, I, when, when I'm talking on the phone with them is, do you have your own therapist? Mm -hmm. Because this is hard mm -hmm. and it can go on a while depending on what's going on and what else is, is going on with it. Mm -hmm. And um, parents are going to need support as just humans. Mm -hmm. What's, what's the first question you ask when you get on the phone with a parent? Oh, how old is their child? Oh. And, um, yeah, I want to place them developmentally. Mm -hmm, sure. when, and how long have they been self-injuring? Sort of like, what's what's that little story? And then right. the second is, do they, do do they, they have, have somebody? Okay, okay. Uh, I feel like one of the things that is really helpful here is, is the fact, I mean, you have a whole chapter on, you know, making sure that we're having good communication. And as we're all about conversations and being open to full exchanges with our children, even when the topics are really tough or uncomfortable like this one, what should we be saying to our children now who, who may not actually be engaging in self-injury, like at all, but maybe, have a, maybe has a friend who is, or maybe 
they haven't heard about it yet and we feel like we want to be proactive and have a conversation about it so they can recognize it or know about it what what would you say to a child who uh you feel like i'd like to talk about this with them um so this is a child who who you know is injuring or no somebody? i'm saying just in, like just let's say yeah like tonight yeah. at dinner time like my my children are not self-injuring but i'd be really I, I like to be really proactive and, and be really open. And I might say, hey, I just, you know, was yeah. talking to this expert about self-injury. Have you ever heard about that before? Like, I'd love to know what kind of things you think we should cover in a conversation like that. You have you have a really good in, don't you? You have lots of good topics. <laughs> Tons. But everybody who listens to this podcast has them because they can blame everything on me. <laughs> it's totally fine. Yeah, I mean, so... You know, one of the pieces of advice we often give is, you know, don't focus so, so much on self-injury. I mean, like, one one way to talk about things is to um, ask kids what they've noticed about um, how they or other people they know, like their friends, that the healthy things they do that, that help mm -hmm. them to cope with sure. negative things, mm -hmm. you know, uncomfortable feelings and so forth. Um, and then what are the positives, some of the positive mm -hmm. things they've noticed, and have it be part of a larger conversation around just mm -hmm. coping in general, because like that it. can open the door to lots of interesting conversations, not just about self-injury, but like drug use and, and, uh, and bulimia and anorexia and yes. that kind of thing. There's lots of stuff that comes up there. And for schools, we recommend that don't, you know, don't call an assembly or focus specifically on self-injury. That's probably not the best idea. If you want to, if you want to say, I love this, what you just said, you know, like I, I listened to this great podcast today and it, they were talking about self-injury. I wonder, do you guys have any friends who do this? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you know about it? Have you ever heard about it? Mm -hmm. So I would encourage parents to ask questions more than to right. provide education exactly. or a lot of detail about anything. Just just learn, become right. curious about your child's experience and exposure and what they notice. And if it feels comfortable and the, the child's into the conversation and not feeling guarded or sensitive, I'd super be, I'd be really careful about that. Um, then I then I might ask, is that something you could, you know, have you ever tried that or would you ever, could you ever imagine trying that? Just, mm -hmm. just to get a little sense of how it places in their life. Right, right. But mostly it's just a just to be curious about what they've seen. Because my guess is they know, most kids know someone who injures, or they, they've seen it now uh, mm -hmm. in, in some way or online, and they're going to probably be willing and able to talk about it. Okay, okay. And, and if a, a child comes home and says that they found out that a friend of theirs is doing this, or they noticed that their friend has has scars or burns or is actively doing it under the desk or whatever it might be, what would be your advice for parents? Like what would be the first step that they, you feel like they should take when a, a ch your child comes home and, and is revealing this? Um, that's a really good question and that is definitely going to happen at times I would imagine for some parents. Um, I would want to know if they, if if they have, you know, I'd want to probably ask my kid questions about how if they know mm -hmm. how long they've been aware that their friend injures. Mm -hmm. Or do they feel worried about them? Mm -hmm. um, why or why not? I, I wouldn't just stop with a yes or no. Mm -hmm. I'd ask them why or why not. Um, so, for example, if the child said, well, I, you know, I don't think they've ever done this before. It was one time and they saw it somewhere or something like that. Then I probably wouldn't get too worried. Mm -hmm. If they say, yeah, no, I, like, I think they've been doing this for, for a while and sometimes I see cuts or band-aids and 
then I'm then I'm like, okay, at this point in my mind, I'm thinking I'm probably going to need to reach out and talk to an adult mm-hmm. um, in that person's in that child's system. So mm-hmm. if it's a child from school, then I would probably contact the school. If I knew mm-hmm. the child's family, I might have a conversation with the parent. Mm-hmm. But, but I probably would do it, um, you know, especially if it were me with resources. Like mm-hmm. I would say, here's some stuff I've learned about it. And here's um, here's some some places you can go to learn more before maybe before you have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So Steam into the child's room and demand to know. I mean that that needs to be handled carefully. Mm-hmm. But generally, one of the things that we found empirically is that um, people don't often have the skills to 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 have good conversations if they're just a it's a peer group. So kids can't really help other kids very well, especially with really serious stuff like this. It's much better if there's an adult in the system. Right, right. Okay. And, you know, going to like a school nurse or a school psychologist who can, you know, obviously access the the family is is something that can be done without feeling like you're contacting the family that maybe you don't know well so there's right. certainly there are are ways of of doing this and 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 having them uh, you know maybe approach the child no, having the the education and the grounding that they do knowing that it needs to be done very uh, kindly and compassionately as you talk about yeah exactly because you never know you know you don't know a family story and there are definitely families uh, lots of people who injure do have a trauma history or they're mm. in a, a hard family situation. And so I would, like you said, be pretty reluctant to reach out directly to a family that I didn't right. know. But right. I would definitely not be reluctant to go to the school and saying and say, this is what I've learned. And, you know, I, I'm going to give this to you in hopes that you can compassionately and effectively sort of intervene with this family. Okay. But you know what's interesting is even in the studies we've done where we've asked people how someone in their life found out about it, mm-hmm. um, they a lot of people will say that they were outed by a friend. Mm. And, um, and every single, I mean, we have a skewed sample. We have people who come for interviews. But in every single interview I've done where somebody has said that, um, they say that they were glad. Oh, they're grateful for it. Yeah, right. but here's the rub. And here's, if I were a parent working with a kid who had a friend who self-injured, I, this is the thing I'd want to tell them. That I'm glad you told me um, it's really important. This I, I'm concerned about this, This you know, your friend. And I feel like I need to go to the um, high school and talk mm-hmm. to middle school and talk to the mm-hmm. counselor there so that they get enough help. And I know that it's possible that your friend, the one who injures, will find out, trace it back to you somehow. And I want you to know that, um, and that, you know, at this point, they may be panicking. Mm -hmm. I don't think of that. Mm -hmm. But I want you to know that um, they are, one of the primary ways people get better, one of the only ways people get better is with help. Mm -hmm. And um, this is too big for a friend to carry. And we know that people don't typically stop injuring if they just have, if they're just confiding in friends. And people who self-injure can end up hurting themselves much more severely than they intended. Right, right, okay. And then I wouldn't have that maybe all, like I would break up that conversation. And the second conversation or third is there may be blowback and it may affect your relationship and that's really too bad, but mm-hmm. you've done the right thing. Yes. And eventually, you know, like, like I said, in our studies, people do come around to see that it was a, that it was a gift. Yes. But they do say sometimes relationships um, are, are burned mm-hmm. in the process of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
But try to be realistic with kids and right. saying that. Okay, really good point, and and thank you for bringing that up. It is, you know, it's it's tough when when doing the right thing can result in the loss of a relationship, even temporarily, or a riff in a relationship that wouldn't have been there. But I mean, how can a relationship really be built on a secret that one knows is is dangerous to their friend and and could possibly end really poorly knowing that by saying something they may be preventing a, a really tragic mistake so it's uh it's it is something that uh, we have to give support with but understanding that what's the other option here you know <laughs> not right. saying something and then and then then you're dealing with those repercussions so exactly. yeah and a lot of you know, kids feel torn often they feel like they yeah. want to be their friend's friend yes. and, and their friend is probably saying please don't tell anybody which I you know I understand that too so it's kind of an introduction to the to the big wide world of reality as you grow up mm-hmm. that sometimes you're in these situations that are really uncomfortable and that there is often a, a kind of it can be confusing but in this case there is really a right thing to do mm-hmm. um, and that holding this kind of secret for a friend especially one that could really end up you know, they could end up doing much more damage than they, they thought is hurtful and hard mm-hmm. and not, and not going to be necessarily productive or supportive. Mm-hmm. Even if it feels that way in the short term, it's, it's not really. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what about how to approach your child if they have been self-injuring, they are getting some help, and you want to be able to check in with them when something is happening in their lives, when things are maybe hard or, or strenuous or challenging. How do we check in with a teen who has been self-injuring without making them feel like we're nagging them, but knowing that we want to give them support? You know, I think honesty Honesty is really the best way to go. I've always seen that. It, it gets the best results. So the, the first thing for a parent to do is to find, this may require that they sit quietly on their own mm-hmm. um, for a little bit and, and find what is their honest truth. I mean, what are the things they, they're worried about? Uh, how can they best say it? And then go start a conversation that has elements in it like this, like, sweetie, I've noticed that, that um, I've noticed some scars on your arm or you know where, wherever you've noticed them or I'm worried I have a sense that, that something might not be uh, things aren't well for you or good for you I, I've noticed this thing that's happening and I and I love you and I'm worried about you and I really want to understand mm-hmm. and I support you like that's the communication mm-hmm. it can it's whatever whatever the content is right so it needs to be authentic fairly honest, reflect a, ch- uh, a parent's uh, deepest desire, which hopefully is to, to understand and support. Right. But a lot of times if parents are really honest with themselves, it isn't that. It's to control and stop it. Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's why I think, you know, doing, and we talk about this in the book, like you're really going to have to spend a little time. It's going to, it asks parents to grow as people too. Mm-hmm. This does, it doesn't, it is not just about, the recovery process isn't just about young people mm-hmm. and the individual's journey is often the whole family has has to kind of wake up to deeper understanding of themselves and their dynamics mm-hmm. so if you could finish this sentence 
what parents and teachers really need to know about teens and self-injury is? That it comes from a psychologically healthy desire to feel better. This is not weird. It's not about suicide. It is really an attempt to feel better, and you can work with that. You can work if you stop focusing so much on the thing and more on the motive, which is to feel better mm-hmm. uh, or to feel integrated. For people who are just dis- so, so people who have a lot of emotion, um, they're going to want to feel calm and, and stasis. For people who get dissociated, they get really num- emotionally numb. They're often looking for integration with their their body and their mind again. Mm-hmm. That's the primary goal for most people. Mm. Um, it can, you know, it can also be a bid for connection, even if it doesn't feel or look that way. Mm-hmm. So another thing, um, you know, this person, even if they feel hostile or or isolative, often what they really want is is to feel seen and connected to another person. And there's a lot of stuff in, that gets in the way. That's why therapy is usually helpful. Mm-hmm. And for some people, it's about punishing themselves, and they're going to need um, they're going to need to know that. That they're that they're okay. They don't need to hurt themselves in order to make their life work. And if we're focused on helping to find coping mechanisms that help our children to feel better, then is a lot of the recovery then based on looking for other coping mechanisms that are healthier versions of this? What what is the the thing we're looking for at that point? Yeah, we have a we have something in the book that I really enjoyed putting together. It's like you're looking for you're looking the, the behavior is probably going to be one of the last things that actually changes. Mm-hmm. It, you might see some um, some reduction of severity or frequency, and that would be good. But before that, usually you're going to notice changes in say how the young person handles emotion. Are they a little less reactive than they were last time? Um, are they a little more able to hear? what they might not have been able to tolerate a few conversations ago. I mean, I um, I write about this one young woman in the book that I know really well who uh, she didn't she didn't injure but she was really deeply depressed and she start before she pulled out of the depression entirely um, uh, her mom and I started to notice that she was just a little, she, like she could stay longer in a conversation that would have normally triggered her <laughs> to mm-hmm. high heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't, she wasn't as reactive and volatile mm-hmm. to, to stimulus. So you might notice the capacity to deal with unwanted emotion, increased tolerance. Mm-hmm. You might notice um, that they have, there's an uptick in being social mm-hmm. or engaged either with friends or with um, things, you know, things outside the house that they wouldn't do before. Um, you might notice that um, the kinds of things that come out of their mouth that reflect their thoughts are less harsh toward themselves or to anybody else. Those will be the kinds of, so this is the deep psychological architecture that has to kind of get dissembled and reassembled in a different way as the recovery process happens. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I always tell parents is, especially if your kid is younger, if they're, um, you know, tween or early teen, time is totally on your side mm. because uh, develop natural developmental processes will generally often bring a lot of the kind of emotional and cognitive integration and broadening, positive broadening that that can really help make the self injury less of a 
of a desired go-to. Okay. Okay. Really good point there. And, you know, parents, of course, want to be as supportive as possible. And, uh, you know, we've got our hearts in the right place. Can you give us the top tip? Where do you want, what do you want people to come away with after listening to this podcast regarding self-injury? Uh, I want them to know that um, that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. I want them to know that they probably, you know, when people say they have a, somebody in their life who self-injures, I assume that they have someone in their life who's, I think of they're sort of exquisite, exquisitely emotionally perceptive. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, where I might be an orchid there. I mean, I might be a dandelion, they're an orchid. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just really... They, people who injure are often very, very perceptive around emotion, emotion that they generate as well as emotion from outside of them. And as I tell them, that's a gift. It, mm. it can feel like a curse and it can be really hard to have such intense emotional experiences in one's body. And it really, they really do experience it in their body subjectively as mm-hmm. way more intense than most of us do, if, or people who don't have that. Um, but. But it's such a gift. I mean, they're and they often will go on. I've seen a lot of this. Like they will, they'll stop injuring, or they'll they'll be able to kind of integrate um, all the lessons, and they go on and often really want to, you know, use their sensitivities to help other people. Hmm. So they, you know, they've got a kid who who has a gift potentially. They have a child who um, is going to need a parent to be as loving and supportive as possible. Um, without being a complete rollover. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a tricky line to walk, right? right. right. Um, because it's not, we don't want to, it doesn't mean you say yes, honey, to everything. That is not it. it but it, but tone of voice matters. I mean, they're going to pick up on a lot of that subtle stuff. That's why we have so much focus in the book on, um, how, you know, there's a couple chapters on just like examining your own thoughts mm-hmm. and examining your own emotions because mm-hmm. they they see them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what it's an opportunity. You mm-hmm. have an opportunity if you have a child who's self-injured. You have an opportunity to kind of learn yourself better and to broaden your understanding of sort of the experience of human emotion and the way it plays out in general. And what a beautiful thing to be able to say that what your child has is a gift, and then help them to recalibrate and find ways to use that gift and cope with all of those emotions in a, in a positive way but not saying there's something wrong with you but actually there's something really right with you and now we just need to to work on this one piece and 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 help you in this way and I'm supporting you and I'm with you every step mm-hmm. so, so give us the resource of the week where do you want us to go to get more information on you and self-injury and and everything else that we need to know about this Go to our website. We have a lot of stuff there. Um, it, uh, it's the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery. I know it's a lot. But you can also write, I think we're under, uh, if you Google Self-Injury and Recovery Resources, mm-hmm. you'll pull up our website. And uh, at the, in the under the Resources tab, there's we have lots and lots of free downloadable information. We have lots of links to other websites and other resources. Uh, we have videos on one page that are videos of people that we have interviewed over the years uh, and who share some of their stories and they're all very, you know, inspiring and helpful. Mm, mm, that will be there's, really helpful, yeah. yeah. There's a lot on there. I would start there. Okay, and I, I'll have 
the link in all of the show notes for those of you who are driving or running or however you're taking in this podcast. We will have all of this information in the show notes. And I just want to thank you so very much, Dr. Janice Whitlock, for your insights and your strategies and everything that you have brought to this topic of self-injury. It's an important topic, something that we do need to know about and that we probably knew very little about many of us. Uh, I certainly had my eyes opened uh, reading this book, so I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you so much for interviewing me. My pleasure. Well, I've got my takeaways, and sweet friends, I know you have yours, so let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook, go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page, or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com, twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And if you love this podcast, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about these solutions and the strategies and the information they really need to know about self-injury so that they can bring them into their own homes and to the people that really need them in their lives. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts are up there, and the show notes, as I said, will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. Perhaps you heard something today and you realized, I should be speaking up. I should be communicating differently. It's okay. Every day is a new day to try again. I see you, and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.